This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. This virus is taking a heavy toll. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. Stay at home means stay at home. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to the Party Room Podcast. I'm Patricia Carvellis. I'm the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing on ABC News TV. And I'm Frank Kelly, host of RM Breakfast, and PK soon will be joined by Sabra Lane, host of AM, to discuss what's been happening this week in Canberra. But the big news is really, and the backdrop to it all, is the national accounts came out this week and they are diabolical. A 7% fall in GDP in the last quarter. That means the economy has shrunk by 7%. This is the biggest quarterly fall since the Great Depression. Now, it's not a surprise, PK, but it certainly is a challenge. And as the Treasurer bemoaned, the road out of this one in 100 year recession will be long, hard and bumpy. Long, hard and bumpy was his language. Uh, he spoke with, I think, you know, pathos and compassion about the real life consequences because when you see a 7% drop like this, it just sounds like a number, right? But it's not just a number. It means uh, thousands of people losing their jobs. It means uh, people's lives being upended. It is huge and it has long consequences for Australia and we all know it. At the same time, of course, uh, and we're going to get into this a bit more with Sabra, but job keeper and job seeker changes made their way through the parliament and Labor really, really zeroed in on um, the, the reduction of those payments, which you can talk about a bit more. But, you know, what that means for the economy, the idea that you pull out support mm. at a time when you most need it. Now, the Treasurer was keen to make the point that, uh, you know, the next uh, set of economic figures are going to be, you know, problematic too, because this doesn't even take account for Victoria. There was a really controversial story leaked uh, to the Herald Sun that essentially made the point that the government was working in Victoria on on this um, plan to extend the stage four lockdown. The Premier, Daniel Andrews, has addressed it this morning, but I just want to sort of talk about it because it has huge national ramifications given he's in a stash really essentially with the federal treasurer. He, he says Sunday is the day the government will announce their roadmap on both the Melbourne and regional Victoria out of this. Mm. Um, he says the, the document that the Herald Sun cited has no status, uh, so rejecting it. But what's key, right, and it is key, is he says this, it will be guided by how many cases there are in Victoria and the types of cases. It won't be guided simply by dates on the calendar, though. It will be guided by the science and the data. Now, of course it will be, but that is actually key, isn't it, Fran? Because it demonstrates that the road out for Victoria is not going to be a simple, you know, September the this or, yeah. you know, October the this, you're going to go out and have a party and go to your favourite restaurant. It's not going to yeah. look like that, quite like that. And that's going to have national ramifications and I think increased tensions potentially with the federal government. Now, it won't look like that. And I suppose if you think about it, how could it ever have looked like that? Because suddenly September the 13th, which is the, you know, the date that stage four lockdown in Melbourne was meant to finish, meant to lift. I mean, you know, what if the numbers are still over 100? That's the problem. But the other problem is that, you know, hearts and souls are going to be dashed by this when they hear that lockdown's unlikely to lift on September the 13th, PK, aren't they? And that goes to a whole lot of things. It goes to, you know, how how much more difficult it is for the, um, for the health authorities and the police to keep the discipline in Melbourne, keep the lockdown as hard as it needs to be to spread, 
you know, to stop community spread. So far, so good. But the longer this goes on, the harder that that is. And also, of course, the longer the lockdown goes on, the more it costs the economy. We're talking about this in the context of the national accounts. The Treasurer's already said that every week of lockdown, stage four lockdown in Melbourne, is costing the general economy, the national economy, between one and two billion dollars. So there is maximum pressure from the federal treasurer, from the federal government on Daniel Andrews to, you know, get this economy opening up. And there's maximum pressure on the on Daniel Andrews from Melburnians who want to be allowed out and to walk further and go further than five kilometres from their home. But of course, there's maximum pressure too on the numbers. And until you see those figures, those people contracting the virus going down, down, down to what? What's it going to be? Single figures? Mm. Double figures? Single what is does what it they have want. to get to? Yep. Single is what they want. Look, Singles could be a long time away, PK. It's, it just shows that when you get something like this out of control, it's it's really impossible. No, I shouldn't use the word impossible because it is possible, but it is incredibly stubborn and difficult to get back down to that level. I mean, that is what this has demonstrated. And there are huge ramifications economically. And now we're having a bit of, bigger discussion, which we can get into a bit more with Sabra as well, about uh, politically, I think everyone is really marking their territory at the moment, aren't they, Fran? You see the lines being drawn. You feel, I feel the sense of what the next election might look like. Well, right? Well, I really do. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but it is a political podcast. People expect that from us. To what? What's the sort of mood and the? You know, you can hear Labor's arguments. They withdrew support too early. Yeah. In terms of the federal government, they didn't have enough of a plan for aged care. Where's your jobs plan? Yeah, they were. Too slow on on acting, uh, and and that's where Labor's positioning. Uh, the government hopes, though, that it can try and shift that blame. And but but ultimately, it keeps having to pay out. It keeps having to pay. Yeah. And if New South Wales gets more out of control, and that's the other big story, uh, watch that space. Right? If that happens, this is the next couple of weeks are a huge test, really for. What what the summer's going to look like, and well, after the devastating bushfires oof, last, are they, this just this is a bigger economic and health story. Oh, what a year it's been! And ultimately, um, let's hope that certainly by the time the next election comes around, and that's either later next year or the following year, the virus will be well under control. But the economy won't be. This is. You know, you, you mentioned the bushfires, PK. The bushfires and the drought had already punched holes in the projected surplus. This this pandemic has wiped that, uh, of course, completely off the books, and the de- debt and deficit will be in the hundreds and hundreds of millions, um, billions even. Um, so, by the time the next election comes around, the government will want to have some semblance of control over the economy, and that's why one of the reasons why there's this maximum pressure on the Victorian government to come up with a plan to open up. On Sunday, Daniel Andrews has promised a roadmap out of there. What you're suggesting is it's unlikely to be lifting of stage four um, restrictions uh, in, you know, by September the 13th. But there needs to be a plan that he can sell to business Mm. and the community about what that might look down when, what are the things, what are the symbols, what are the the benchmarks, if you like, that'll have to be hit um, before lockdown, the economy opens up and what that will look like. Business is calling for this and the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, does believe that the pressure he's put on the Premier over the last week or two, which we've been talking about here in the party room, um, has really forced the Premier's hand here, that he didn't really want to have to come up with this uh, roadmap out on Sunday, but he's been 
force to. So let's wait and see what that looks like. Let's do it. Should we bring in our guest? Why not? Sabra Lane is the host of AM. Welcome back to the party room. Oh, PK, it's good to be back. Although, could you turn down the glitter ball? <laughs> never, never. Why would you want to turn down the glitter ball? It's anything keeping me alive. (laughs) In these bleak times. And, Saba, we certainly got some very bleak figures this week with the national accounts. Not unexpected, um, Mm. but, you know, certainly not rosy by a long shot. You're up in the press gallery right now. The Treasurer's been getting out and about. What's his message and what's his mood? I mean, his message is that the government is working on the plan It's going to be revealing part of that plan, a good chunk of it, in the budget next month in October. Uh, But the government also has been sort of maintaining pressure really all week on Victoria as well, because that is also a big part of the picture, the fact that the state is still down in lockdown. PK, you know that all too well, I know that. The point is that that is a big part of the national economic story and that is going to reflect in the next set of national accounts figures because they certainly weren't reflected in the national accounts that were revealed this Wednesday, which, you know, Fran, you you said it, we didn't really need confirmation of it, but we're in a recession. It's the biggest downturn that Australia's witnessed since the Great Depression. You know, everyone's a bit gloomy about it, but the government is sort of trying to project an image that they're getting on with it, they're getting on with their plan, sort of hinting that they're bringing forward legislated tax cuts as part of their plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, There'll be investment measures for business to help them um, get about creating jobs because, you know, that is also a sad part of the story is that more people are going to lose their jobs in the lead up to Christmas. Yeah, that's right. We were talking about that a little earlier with Fran, but what What's really interesting, a couple of things for me, one is that the government was keen to say, hang on a minute, could have been a lot worse. Look at the UK, look at the US, like, you know, our downturn 7% is significant, but we we could have been worse. Pointing to Victoria, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, you know, we would have even been better and, and it will get worse because of Victoria. And that's been really the, the sort of political framing for them, that, that, that it's a success story. But what I find interesting, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Sabra, is of course this week uh, job keeper, job seeker changes were legislated. And part of that, it wasn't actually in the legislation, but part of that is the reduction in the payment. I reckon that happening at the same time as the recession officially being announced is a massive pivot point for Labor and potentially the government because people are going to feel the pinch. They're going to lose $300 and it's going to be further reduced. This is the tapering out. At the same time as they hear the R word that it's official, the worst downturn in nearly 30 years. This is a big political risk, I think, for the government and the budget is going to have to be their answer there uh, in terms of stimulatory measures. Don't you think that is a a risky proposition at this stage, taking some of that stimulus out of the economy? Sure, it is a risky proposition and Labor too, uh, interestingly, had... uh Well, you'd say it was an interesting balancing act on this because only weeks ago they were saying their argument had been that the government should be tailoring some of these payments because some people who were getting JobKeeper, in fact, were earning more on that payment that they were actually earning in their real jobs. And they flipped that around this week to to say, well, they shouldn't be tapering the payments at all. Uh, But you're dead right. Those payments will start tapering at the end of this month and uh, people will really feel this and they will know about it uh, before Christmas because that's part of the calculations is that um, still close to half a million people will be uh, officially 
sort of joining the unemployment queues or that that at least is the forecast by the end of the year. Yeah, and some say that's a you know rose-coloured glasses view of things. That when you take away JobKeeper, some of these so-called zombie businesses that are only still there operating because they've got it, you know, more of them will close down, and there'll be an absolute flight to the jobless queues. But I'm interested, Saba. You know, the the government, the Prime Minister, and the Treasurer, with the message on winding back JobKeeper and JobSeeker from March, it's all about we just can't afford to keep borrowing forever. You know, we've reached the limit. But now, with the government is hinting very strongly it might bring forward the stage two and three tax cuts, uh, which are legislated, or stage two certainly is, that's, you know, getting close to $150 billion um, of of, of debt, really, that, that we're spending. So at the same time, we can't afford to keep JobKeeper. We can afford to bring forward the tax cuts, um, which is going to be a big hit to the, the economy on one sense. It will be a stimulus. But as a lot of my listeners were pointing out when discussing this on the radio this week, tax cuts are only useful to those people who have jobs. If you're not if you're not earning, if you haven't got a job, you're not paying tax, the tax cuts do nothing for you. Is this misguided from the government to, to bring this forward as one of their big stimulus, stimulatory measures? Well, I mean, there are those economists who are saying this is the right way to go because for businesses that are struggling at the moment, that uh, if you give them, you bring forward those cuts, it might put them in a position where they're going to hire more people. But the other interesting prospect here, Fran and PK, uh, the national accounts figures this week showed the highest rate of savings on record that people have <laughs> yeah, squirrelling away money, 19.8%, you know, and that was a question I put to Josh Frydenberg, was that uh, isn't there a danger here that you deliver these tax cuts and people just continue squirrelling it away? They don't well, spend it. Well, they did that with the, the first tranche, didn't they? I mean, they yeah. didn't spend them the way the government was hoping they would. That was before in this pandemic, remember? So all that money didn't end up stimulating the economy as planned. And you'd think, given what you just said, that might be even more pronounced this Of course, time. because uh, there are re- there are active restrictions everywhere, but particularly, of course, in Victoria, the most acute restrictions. And you can't, you can't go out. So if you've got a job, like I've got a job, I've got money, I can't go out and spend it like I used to, right? I'm actually restricted uh, legally from spending it. So you try to do things, get takeaway, do that sort of thing, because I believe small business should be supported. But there's limits to how much you can do. So this is the sort of ultimate dilemma with going down that road. We know people at the lower income ends are more likely to spend money. It might not be a very effective strategy, Sabra. It may not be. I mean, and that's the other thing. The ABS figures, the, the figures that they have actually been putting out week by week using analysis of banking data and um, spending retail information that they've been getting from the big companies has in fact been showing that those people that have been receiving the COVID supplements are spending the money. Yeah, They are the ones who are stimulating the economy. Yeah. So yeah. it really well, because, does put the government in a tricky position. Well, because that point that you make, PK, about, you know, you can't actually go out and spend it because a lot of things aren't open, that's one point. But I think it also goes to confidence too, don't you, Sabra, that, mm, you know, definitely. we're not confident to be spending like we were before because we're not confident what the future might hold. A lot of no. people are not confident their jobs will be there at the end of the year or the or the end of March. And um, Victoria, the state of things in Victoria, I think, has a big part to play there in terms of confidence, not just in Victoria, but nationally, I think. Big time. Uh, and and that the, the issue of Victoria has been really an interesting one because we've seen the Prime Minister and the Treasurer really try and pile a heap of pressure on Dan Andrews about spelling out 
a specific plan of how he's going to lift the restrictions uh, on the on the state. That also has been playing out in discussions that we've seen with the National Cabinet as well. I mean, up until now, National Cabinet's been functioning pretty well, but you've got all these state premiers. They say that they are being guided by their own health advice in keeping borders down, but you've got Anastasia Palaget with firm borders in place. You've got WA, borders in place, Tasmania, not even talking about lifting its borders until December and, of course, Victoria. So you've got the National Cabinet agreeing on these things and supposedly they agreed on a a plan out months ago. Uh, You've got the Prime Minister saying, well, I want them to come up with a definition of hotspots based on what the uh, Principal Health Protection Committee is going to put forward to it about what a hotspot is. But again, are they expecting that the leaders are going to agree to this? And that was an interesting confession late week from the Treasurer that, no, the leaders may not agree on that. So, yes. Yeah, so and, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, yeah. National Cabinet's meeting like on the Friday. Uh, they may have resolved something, but you're right. Uh, they the, they've been preparing us for the fact that they may not because clearly no, Queensland that, WA, they want to go it alone, don't they? They want to, yeah, well, they do want to go it alone, but the problem here, and this is where there is immense frustration building within the federal government is that uh, the feds are on the hook for the costs of all of this. The longer the restrictions stay in place, you know, the longer they face, uh, you know, paying more people for JobKeeper and keeping those payments going. Also, just in just in terms of the borders too, though, so yes, the, the federal government's on the hook for the cost by and large, um, but also it's the notion, and this must be difficult, certainly frustrating for the Prime Minister, is that he can't force the states to do what he wants to do. He's going to come up with some kind of traffic light system definition of hotspot, but it's over to them, as he keeps reminding us. Is that entirely true, though, Sabra? I mean, isn't there a constitutional power the federal government could use to force this a bit more? And if so, why aren't they? Well, there is a constitutional power. Uh, I think you also had uh, Scott Ryan on talking earlier this week about how he's not quite sure uh, where constitutionally all the states are actually getting the power from to implement these kinds of things. It's a little bit jarring. You've got all these people that are being forced to uh, isolate. Uh, the, the federal government's coming up with the, these examples of cancer patients that have had surgery that are being forced to isolate before they go, get home. And yet you've got jarring pictures of AFL officials mm. and players just waltzing into Queensland. Yes, they are in isolation in their hotels, but they're allowed to go to the bar and yeah. pool and stuff like that. It was like a that. bad look, a, wasn't it? It's was like a two-speed yeah, lockdown. Terrible. It is a shocking look. It is really, really bad. Yeah, it's, it is actually, um, I think, one of the most jarring moments and just shows, you know, the, the double, double standards, two sets of rules and all of that elitism too. Look, Sabra, there's, there's something else that's happened this week and, uh, look, you know, he's kind of not in charge anymore but still not helpful for the Liberals, I don't think, um, because former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who I think is going to be a trade envoy now in for the UK, but... This week, for the UK, let's just repeat that, a trade envoy, yeah. former Australian Prime Minister, trade envoy for the UK. I know, usually that would be the hugest yarn, isn't it, guys? But Ugh. because of coronavirus, I think it was swept a bit, you know, aside. But, yeah, it is quite significant in and of itself. But he commented on coronavirus, the handling of coronavirus, and had a go at Daniel Andrews saying Victorians are under house arrest and various other uh, extreme things. Fran, it was pretty full on, wasn't it? It was full on. In fact, I think in case people haven't heard it, let's just play a bit of Tony Abbott giving this speech in London. In this climate of fear, 
it was hard for governments to ask how much is a life worth because every life is precious and every death is sad. But that's never stopped families sometimes electing to make elderly relatives as comfortable as possible while nature takes its course. Inevitably, much of the media has spread virus hysteria with the occasional virus-linked death of a younger person highlighted to show that deadly threat isn't confined to the very old or the already very sick. Wow, so that's former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Going uh, to places uh, where yeah, politicians con- don't want to very go. Very contentious, but I just want to make this point. This is Tony Abbott, who we all know um, is a right to lifer, uh, has, you know, his outspoken views about euthanasia, the, the sanctity and importance of life, essentially making a very contentious and I think um, uh, very controversial argument about the worth of life. Mm, the value of a life. The value of life. You've got to sort of wonder if he's... Uh, morally and intellectually being particularly consistent, Sabra, I would argue not so much. Uh, It seems when it suits him, he'll make those arguments. But in this case, not so much. It's also really interesting to remember, as well as uh, Fran, you pointing out, he used to be uh, the Prime Minister and the number one salesman for Australia. Mm. He used to be the nation's health minister. Oh, yeah, I remember that. One wonders how how different things would be playing out if he was still there. Well, that's right, because in that speech he accused the politicians, the political leaders, of acting like trauma surgeons, you know, saving a life at any cost rather than health economists. Mm. And the point about hysteria is that I would argue that the media has been faithfully reporting what uh, chief medical officers and health ministers have been saying. Totally, Sabra. Thank you. Like that's the thing that annoyed me the most as a sort of a journalist in this space is that that's exactly what we've been doing. I have I have no independent ideas about the way coronavirus spreads and works and how to manage it. I listen to the experts, and that's that's our role, right? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. No. Uh, that's our job. That's what we've been doing. We haven't been spreading hysteria. We have been reporting the chief health officer. That is our job. And so when he says that, I think it's a really dangerous game. And I want to make one extra point because I think it's really important here. Yes, he's former prime minister, but he was a prime minister for this ongoing government, the coalition government we still have, (laughs) a different era of it, absolutely. But that's why it was difficult, his intervention for, I think, the government, because Mm. they, uh, he was one of them, right? (laughs) So I think it just reminds voters like, hello, remember him? He said that. Mm, Do other people think that? Mm, That's disturbing. And I think that is an issue. It was interesting, though. We clearly heard ministers like Matthias Cormann completely distance themselves. They don't want to be associated with the comments that he's making now. No, and certainly the Prime Minister stood up almost straight away, really. Didn't mention him by name, I don't think, but certainly disassociated himself from this whole concept of, you know, putting a dollar value on one life compared to the dollar value on another life. I think it's fair to say they don't see this contribution from the former Prime Minister as particularly helpful. No, not helpful. Sabra, you've been a great guest. Thanks so much for visiting us in the party room. You're welcome. Thanks, Sabra. PK, the bells are ringing. It's question time. And we've got a question this week from Brody. Brody asks, 
I see so many politicians grilled by reporters over rorts and scandals. However, no change or accountability ever seems to come from this anymore. It seems politicians direct focus away from the real issue long enough for the interview to be over, and that's it for any kind of scrutiny. Hmm. Good listening, Brody. PK? Look, I, Brody, I do think there is an issue around accountability. Uh, you're right. Journalists, and I think journalists largely do a good job. Of course, there are exceptions, but are pursuing these issues and asking all the hard questions. Uh, I think politicians have got a lot better at just, in fact, some. I had a few politicians even making this point to me this week, at just holding the line, just holding off until the storm is over. And then uh, the best example of that, Brody, is, of course, sports, the sports rorts, right? Um, that was, I think, a breathtakingly uh, outrageous story. And yet the government weathered that storm. Yes, Bridget McKenzie lost a job, so there was some consequence, but there were broader, broader accountability issues necessary there. Uh, they managed to get out of that hole. I think coronavirus and the crisis probably was very well-timed, terrible. I don't think they wanted it, don't get me wrong, but equally allowed them to kind of move on from that. So I think your thesis is generally right that politicians, uh, you know, just kind of weather a storm and accountability seems difficult. And I think the old Westminster system, you know, where you where ministers would kind of fall and, and take accountability earlier, I miss those days. I feel like we are not there anymore. I don't think it's the responsibility of journalism per se. I think there is a problem with our political culture. Fran? Yeah, it's true. And Brody, for many years, I've been interviewing politicians on live radio. So I have a I have a time limit. It's just the way it is. You can't just keep the conversation going for half an hour if you want. And they're aware of that. And I'm aware of that. So then it becomes down to a little dance you do between when you get off one topic, when you leave it, even though they may not have answered, how many times can you go back and say, well, let me put that to you again and move on to something else that really needs an answer as well. So that is a a constant tension and a constant tussle. And sometimes, you know, speaking personally, I do it better than others. And sometimes I get out foxed, I suppose. But I do think that this Prime Minister has made a bit of an art form of dodging accountability with questions, uh, with answers like, I'm just going to leave that in the bubble, or I don't agree with your premise, and then moving something on. And even in the Parliament under this Prime Minister, uh, a lot of Debate has been gagged. You know, Labor has not been able to get the government to engage in debates in Parliament as governments have in the past agreed to, say, in the times of John Howard, for instance, uh, or, or Kevin Rudd even. Um, but uh, So I do think this Prime Minister is, you know, genuinely makes himself less accountable um, than others previously. Do you think that's fair, PK? Yeah, I do. And I think that it becomes... I think when there's a huge crisis like at the moment, and I don't think that's the only reason that you're right, but I think it allows you to kind of avoid other issues too. Okay, just before we head off, if you just can't get enough of RN, we've got another podcast we think you might like. Yep, it's called This Working Life, hosted by Lisa Leong. It's all about helping you through your career, giving you ideas and inspiration to deal with the tough times. I've really liked this one. Yeah, and Lisa is, can I just say, one of the most terrific presenters and human beings. An absolute pocket rocket of a human. She is just so likeable too. So it's kind of like LinkedIn, but more fun, much more fun. Uh, This Working Life, available 
available wherever you get your podcasts or the ABC Listen app. There's us too. You can ask us questions on Twitter. Uh, you know where we are. Pat's Carvalis is what I'm called. Frank Kelly's also online. I'm, I'm generally just kind of like, you know, you'll notice I just troll Fran because I miss <laughs> her so much. It's like I just harass her online all the time. You've got it covered, PK. Yeah, You're right, right there. I'm fine. I'm doing, I'm doing it. All right. Until next time, see you, Fran. See you, PK. Thank you.